0: This is Fayette Forward, where we discuss trails, transit, city planning, and anything else that's on our minds.
1: Our goal is to keep Fayetteville moving forward in a positive, inclusive, and intentional way that benefits everyone who lives in this great city in the Ozarks. You ready? Come on in.
0: Hello, and welcome to Fayette Forward. Our guest today is Britton Bostick. She is the City of Fayetteville's Long Range Planning and Special Projects Manager, and she works with everything from historic preservation to development code amendments to transportation to sustainability to parks, arts, housing, and more. And if you haven't listened to our previous two episodes with Britton, I would highly suggest you do that because she is a fountain of knowledge, and they were really good episodes, so go back and check those out. But for those of you who haven't heard of Britain, we just wanted to give her an opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself. Welcome to the podcast again.
2: Oh, thanks for having me back. This is so fun. Thanks for joining. So really fun to be back with y'all talking about things that I love. Historic preservation has been really fun lately. And so what a lot of people don't know is long-range planning for cities typically includes historic preservation. And the reason this is so important to planning, and I talked about this the last time I was with y'all, is that historic context helps us understand why we have what we have today and also maybe what we can do if we want to do things differently today than we used to do them. And so it's, it's kind of fun to do historic preservation work at the moment because traditional town forms Traditional city development is something that's getting a lot of highlights and a lot of people are saying we want to return to that. So it's important for us to understand it and understand our traditional city development patterns so that we can see what would it be like to go back to a model that has more dense walkable urban form that you generally associate with historic areas of cities.
0: Yeah. And we wanted to have you back uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is that you're delightful. But besides that, uh, just because a lot has happened this year and, you know, there's a lot of momentum right now with development and growth and it's on everyone's mind. So we thought, why not bring the long range planner back to uh, give us some insight into what's been going on with the city and the planning. So if you want to start maybe just telling us about some of the successes, successages, the, (laughs) the successes and challenges that you've had so far this year.
2: Let's see. We're still in 2023, right? We haven't, we haven't left that. Almost. We're almost out. <laughs> so this year, one of the things that I think we've been really successful with in working with the planning commission, so it's another thing Long Range does, our planning commission reviews developments primarily. And our development review staff are supporting that work and, and doing a lot of the applications that we get coming in. Long Range staff has a little bit different role. And so we look a lot at how does the code need to adapt to get us better outcomes? And so let's say we're going through development review, when we identify something that's either not working well or something that could be better or something that needs to be changed, we support that work to get the code updated. And something that we've done this year that I think is really great is that we had an access management requirement. So stay with me here because there's a lot of technical words, but access management you can think of basically as how vehicles enter and exit private properties onto city streets, right? And so if you're in your car and you're driving and you turn into a driveway and you go to a store and you park in a parking lot... We consider all of that a form of access management. And so if you have a property that has four separate driveways, four different opportunities to enter the property off of a city street, that's the kind of thing that makes us really nervous, especially if those driveways are close together because it's not very safe. And if you can imagine if you're walking or biking on the sidewalk that has those four different driveways cut in across it, you have four different opportunities to be hit by a car <laughs> that's turning in and not yeah. seeing you. And that's not good. So one driveway, or two driveways instead of four driveways is part of access management requirements. We, you can't have four, that's too many, but you can maybe have one or two. And so we had a little bit of language in our code, and sometimes big code amendments are the tiniest little word changes. This is an example of that. We had this little bit of language that said, basically, cross-access, shall be encouraged. Meaning connecting properties together through their parking lots, through a series of driveways off of the city street is preferred to having multiple driveway curb cuts. It's a safer way to go. It's a slower way to go. And then you kind of route people off to the side streets and then they can go to a light to turn left and you reduce the number of left hand turns onto really busy city streets and roads. So all of that, it's a be encouraged we can't hold people to shall be encouraged right there's no there's no real teeth to that and so we went through a process of saying shall be encouraged means that we can't actually require the safer better outcome and so we want to change it to shall be required and the planning commission supported that and the city council supported that and that was like a massive win for safety in the long term. And a massive win for us to be able to get better urban form in the long run. Yes, And so, or in the long term, which is why it was a long-term planning kind of thing. So it's such a tiny thing but I think the long-term uh, impacts are going to be really well worth it and really much much bigger than the effort was at the time. And then something that's really challenging, obviously, is we have so many people moving here for various reasons. And then that's putting a lot of people in a position where they can't afford to live in Fayetteville. And we want people to live in Fayetteville because... Positive economic growth helps all of us, right? But just the concern our community has and the challenges they're facing around growth, specifically how it's impacting their household budgets, is is something that, you know, I definitely spend a lot of time on and have a lot of concerns about. And so I've been working really hard over the last few months to try to put numbers to what we're hearing from the community and try to quantify that in very specific ways. And so even though we've been able to make that assessment, there's been a lot of challenges to getting that done. And then also, we're talking about people's homes. This is very, very personal, right? And we're talking about incomes, and I'm talking about them in a citywide scale. So in that sense, they're not personal, but these are things that have very personal impact to our residents. And so that's something that has been really challenging, worthwhile challenge, absolutely, but challenging nonetheless. Right, right.
1: Well, first of all, I just want to know what you were talking about with the access points awesome it made me think of 71b which we've discussed yes but that's exactly where my mind went with that was thinking i've always this whole time with 71b been thinking this all sounds great especially the whole adding a bike lane and all that but knowing how many access points are going onto the street i've always thought like how safe could this actually be so i love 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 that that was your big win Because I know it's technical and I know that maybe it doesn't get most people as excited as it gets me, but I was pretty pumped when you were saying that. So thank you. And then also on, you know, regarding the challenge, I hear you've been working on a housing assessment.
2: So we have a housing assessment. It lives online now. Uh, If you can't find it, I'll send you a copy. There's a lot of background to this, but it was really important for us to put numbers to the concerns our community was expressing about their inability to afford housing. You know, you can hear that and people can have concerns, but until you can put a number to the problem and you can kind of understand what the scale of the problem is, it's hard to figure out what the solutions might be. So we put a lot of data and details into what is the scale of the problem so that we have something to act on. And 71B is going to be tied up into that. Surprise, Mm -hmm. surprise. It's Mm -hmm. all connected. It's all connected by Fayetteville streets. Compact,
0: Uh, complete, and connected.
2: Yes. exactly right. (laughs) So all of these things, you know, we don't just have challenges, but we have, I think, great potential solutions for those. And 71B is part of, I think, the solution to our housing challenges. And we're excited about that.
1: That's very exciting. So where did you get all this information? The
2: internet. We're all all good information is found. (laughs) So we, oh goodness, I think my colleague Sherry and I started working on this about about a year ago. And one of the first things for us to... To do was to go through data sources and say, where do you find information about housing? And then where do you find information about housing in Fayetteville? And then once we collected a whole bunch of data sources, we started to kind of cull through those and say, okay, what is looking like good data that we can successfully use? And then what is maybe going to be more challenging to you? So for example, if you have a report that's put out that's kind of covering national housing data it's unlikely they're going to have Fayetteville-specific data. So you might get a sense of what's happening nationally, but we may or may not match with that. And then you can look at universities nationally. And then you can can look at who's in the Southeast Conference, the SEC, and the University of Arkansas is in that. So we can compare ourselves to other SEC cities. But then we're not very comparable to Arkansas in many ways, (laughs) like as a state. So we ended up going through a lot of, of a lot of information and then also what's the most recent. Cause sometimes you find something and you think, Oh, that's really good and then you look at the date on it, it's like from twenty fifteen and mm-hmm. you're like, Oh man, that's not gonna work so well. It's almost ten years <laughs> it's ago.
0: Pre COVID times it's the real thing. Throw
2: it all out. No, no, but that's a that's a real thing. And then also anything that was prior to twenty nineteen is really difficult to use, depending on what it is, because the the just the changes in mortgage rates and inflation mm-hmm. and covid impacts and all of that has changed so many things and so after all of that, what we ended up landing on is the city has really good helpful data in terms of building permits and completed residential units and what the permit valuations are, how long it takes to permit things. We have good information as far as utility account holders so we can kind of understand how many households. It turns out we think we're a bit more accurate than the census is. No offense to them, but you know, we we've got more specific data that they don't necessarily use. And then also we have the The 2022 American Community Survey estimates roll out on September 14th. And so in the middle, actually, as we're getting toward the end of this assessment, we had brand new federal data to work through. And that is that's actually provided some really helpful insights compared to 2021. But what's kind of interesting is that Bentonville data was not released. Um, and even at the time that we released the report, Bentonville 2022 data was not available. And so we could only compare 2022 to Springdale and Rogers, trying to understand how we were changing in the context of our regional peers, both um, like Bentonville left out in it. Yeah. Was like, oh, well, we wish we had that missing piece, um, but sometimes the federal data doesn't come out when you want it to. It's a conspiracy. Uh, <laughs> I well, and I was like, man, I'm glad I'm not a long range planner in Bentonville. And, you know, <laughs> trying to wrap this yes. up, if, if I'd been doing this in Fayetteville was the one left out, and I would have been like, well, guys, everybody else has 2022 data, but we don't even have yeah. it. We have 2021, yeah. then that would have put, you know, not, not good, but we so got lucky.
0: For those of you listening that maybe don't want to read a whole report, if you could kind of just outline, for us. What are the general broad strokes of this document?
2: So page three of the housing assessment has an executive summary where we summarize both the findings and the recommendations. Where we are in terms of findings is for our projected population growth, and we're supposed to be around 151,000 people in 2045. So over the next 22 years, Fayetteville is going to grow by another 50,000 or so people. And so that means to keep pace with that growth, to mean meaning that if we created a new housing unit for every household that moves here, we need about 1,000 new units of housing annually. Wow. And that sounds like a lot, and that might sound like, whoa, that's like out of reach. Funny enough, the city issues building permits for about 1,000 new units of housing annually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been keeping pace with our past and projected growth. But we started growing faster than we were projected to in 2019. And so we're currently about 1,500 units short of meeting our housing demand. So everybody has the house that they want. We're like 1,500 units. So that's also a lot. And in the same time period, I'll just mention the university's population has, you know, their enrollment at least has really grown a lot. So they're at 32,140 students this year and they're planning to be 36,000 students by 2025. So we should have another 4,000 students in the next two years. So it's not that, oh, we grew and then, we're, no, we're like still kind of in this pretty rapid growth. So that put us kind of behind. And then if you can kind of understand that that demand for housing is increasing prices, that's putting a lot of Fayetteville households in a position where they're not able to afford housing. So, you might hear me talk about cost burden households, and those are households that pay 30% or more of their annual household income on housing costs. And that's not just rent or mortgage, that's also utilities, insurance, things like that. And so, if your rent is $1,000 a month, then your housing costs are going to be higher than that because you're also paying your electric bill, your water bill, your trash bill, things like that. So. 38% of Fayetteville's total households, like all households in Fayetteville, 38% were cost burdened by housing costs as of 2022. And that is up from 30% in 2021. So we're getting to where more and more people are having to pay kind of a disproportionate uh, amount of their income on housing costs. Um, and those are kind of the things that we, like we really... I think wanted to focus on and, like I said, put numbers to what people are experiencing and say what's happening. And so what's kind of interesting, if you look at that and say, okay, well, if we have people, you know, if we're short on housing units, we need more housing units. And then if we have a lot of people who can't afford housing units, especially like new housing is coming in at it, it kind of like record breaking prices. Um, then, what do we do? And so, I mentioned we we're going to have about 50,000 more people in the next 22 years. And so, that creates a need for about 23,600 housing units. We've got to build more housing for, for all those people. So, out of these 23,600 housing units we need kind of in the next 22 years, 8,400 of those would have to be calibrated to be affordable for lower income households. So, we don't Mm -hmm. just need to build housing. We also need housing that's available at affordable rates for people Mm -hmm. so that we don't continue to have people in this cost burden situation. And so, that's kind of the scale of the problem that we're dealing with, and why are we dealing with it? So, Fayetteville's zoning policies have emphasized low-density development since the 1970s, even though our population has tripled since then, and so back in the 1970s, when, you know, we we're kind of easily able to spread out. You hear a lot, land is cheap. At certain points in history. And so this is the point, land is cheap. And this is really funny, there's some language and actually an ordinance uh, it talks about kind of the the evils of, of, of overcrowding in cities. <laughs> this is very common language in the United States from like the <laughs> 20s into the 50s and the 70s, yeah. overcrowding in cities. And so the thing that we're trying to do today, we said 50 years ago, we don't want to do that because mm-hmm. that's kind of, so we want our policies to not encourage that. And now we're saying, oh, actually, we really want that to happen, we mm-hmm. you know because we're 100,000 people now. We're mm-hmm. three times bigger than we were 50 years ago, and we kind of want to make those adjustments. And so here's kind of a, a wild thing, and, and this came out of the, the math we were doing. If we built all of those new housing units we need for our projected population growth, the next 50,000 people, if we built it all in kind of our low-density development pattern that's pretty predominant throughout many places in Fayetteville, it would require 7,000 acres of land which is about 11 square miles, and 156 miles of streets, water, and sewer. Oh
0: my wow. Gosh. Which is very expensive yes. and difficult to yes. build. Yes.
2: And so, by comparison, like Fayetteville right now is about 36,000 acres. We're just under 36,000 acres. Oh and gosh. so that's seven thousand more acres. Yeah. Uh, and then we have just over four hundred, I think, four hundred miles of streets right now. So one hundred and fifty-six miles yeah. compared to the four. We'll just have to eat the other cities around us. Well, and that's consume kind of, them. That's kind of you know you Pac-Man, <laughs> rah, 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 get everybody. But here's so if you want me to freak you out even more. Oh no. <laughs> brace yourselves. Bring it on. So that's it. Our our kind of projected growth. If our current, like our right now population growth trend continues, it would require more than 12,000 acres of land, and that's a third of Fayetteville's current land area. Oh my gosh. But that's if we continue with current with patterns. very low density, yes. single family home development patterns. I have
0: a couple of follow-up questions to what you were just talking about. One of them was um, infill versus sprawl. Obviously we're going to have to do more infill because of what you just said, uh, for a lot of reasons. Is do you expect infill to show up everywhere where we have development right now? I mean, West Fayetteville has sprawled, and it's very traditional in a lot of ways. And so, but there's probably lots of infill opportunities even in those newer areas. Or do you think the infill will remain focused in the you know the areas like 71B corridor and things like that?
2: I think if we will focus our infill on already high intensity areas, that mm-hmm. would be best. And here's why I say that. So Weddington is an example of like a really high traffic, high intensity corridor right now, right? And Weddington is kind of interesting because there's so many different street sections along it. Like Weddington in character changes a lot. Mm-hmm. And you're transitioning North Street to Weddington, mm-hmm. you know, out. And so there's a lot of different aspects of it as you drive along it but we already also have a ton of infrastructure built Mm -hmm. in right there. So the 156, I said, that's all brand new. That's not revising what we already have. That's in addition to what we currently have, that is incredibly expensive to build and it's just beyond expensive to maintain in the long term and for the lifetime of a city. And so if you think about places like Weddington and then if you think about places like 71B, all of that infrastructure already exists. Those Mm -hmm. roads exist, the water exists, the sewer exists. And you may have to upgrade or kind of replace things over time, but you're still way better off than having to build new and then do that exact same thing. And it's much more efficient. And so what I think people think about about when they hear us say infill is they think somebody's going to drop a house between me and my next door neighbor yeah. <laughs> and there's not enough space for that. And then that will create all kinds of problems. I agree that would create all kinds of problems in many circumstances. So when we say infill, we're not necessarily <laughs> meaning like that level of specificity. We're more thinking about current commercial corridors that oftentimes don't allow for housing or they don't allow for dense urban housing types. I think, you know, mixed use where you've got commercial on the ground floor and then a few stories of apartments above. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of those opportunities in Fayetteville currently. Not a lot of people can choose to live that way if they wanted to, because it just doesn't really exist in, in a lot of places. And so if you could put your additional housing units in spaces like that, rather than kind of disrupting existing neighborhoods, I think that's the better outcome. Because we have a lot of people who have been in Fayetteville for a long time, and they're, they have you know these beautifully knit-together neighborhoods, and they have this wonderful sense of community. And the goal is not to disrupt the sense of community and the sense of place that Fayetteville has. Those are things that are very special and precious to us. But there are a lot of places that don't have that, and there are a lot of places where for reasons that are tied back to, I think, 1951 policy decisions where we're saying commercial encroachment and residential is terrible. And that was the way that we formed up zoning at that point in time in America. We said we don't want commercial and residential to mix. And to be fair, we still had coal fire plants and things like that going, right? So you don't want those right next to your house, probably. And there's there's zoning law cases about it. That's a whole different podcast topic. But today, we don't have some of those same kind of like noxious proximities and some of those nuisance proximities uh, to avoid. And we have so many people who are moving here who would choose a more urban type of lifestyle, literally if we had the units available, that I think providing that housing type could really help relieve some of the pressure that traditional neighborhoods have, where that's the only housing option that people have. And they would make different choices if those choices were available. Oh, 100%. But because a lot of our multifamily housing or apartment housing is focused on student-only housing. It's marketed to students. It's leased on a by-the-bedroom basis. Um, And so that's been the the majority of what we've gotten in the last few years, and that's what's coming into the market right now because we have such large university growth. We need similar housing types for non-student residents, and that's what we would love to see in these corridor areas because then we make good street improvements to College Avenue we help make things safer because we kind of, we just talked about this access management. We, we deal with access management. We have great wide sidewalks and safe spaces and good lighting and an and easy way to get around. And all of a sudden, your lifestyle options are just completely different from maybe what they were before. And so all of what we're working on right now is not to focus it on the outskirts where we potentially have environmentally sensitive areas, where we potentially have boundaries with other cities. We're not trying to Pac-Man the whole region. But how can we focus that where we already have great resources, not only to put toward this so that our our residents can also take advantage of?
0: It's interesting because I think that infill in particular crosses political ideologies in a lot of ways that I think are interesting to me because I think a lot of times infill is pushed more by people that are more left-leaning for whatever reason. But people that are more right-leaning are more fiscally conservative they could see that as benefits if they really think about like how much more efficient for the city in terms of the cost and everything to build infill. Like you said, you don't have to build out all new infrastructure and all these things. And so it's really more cost effective. It's a better use of tax dollars. So I'm hoping that this is not a political issue and that people can really come together because I feel like it does kind of straddle that line. I think where you get into the most trouble is when people are like, I want my acres of land versus whatever. But I think there's room for everybody mm-hmm. in all types here. And I think that, like you said, you're not trying to do infill in every spot. So if you still want to have that rural life, you can have that rural life. And you may have to go a little farther out than you used to in the past, but you can still do that. Or if you want to have that infill life where you are close to all the resources, you live in a walkable neighborhood, that's available too. So I, I like that aspect of it.
2: Well, and I think that's, that really is the best way to preserve options for people because if we're going to take up 7000 additional acres if we're going to take up an yeah. additional 12000 acres you lose your ability to live close to the city, but on a few acres of land, because that's going Mm -hmm. to be consumed by housing developments. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the scale of what we're talking about. And this is particularly important when you're looking at environmentally sensitive areas. And and we have a lot of springs around Fayetteville. Um, Northwest Arkansas has got beautiful springs and, and interesting species. And I think. Sometimes people think that low-density development is the way to keep the land free and keep the land being able to provide important kind of natural resource functions. And to an extent, yes, but oftentimes what we really need to look at is maximizing density in places that are not as sensitive so it can afford us the opportunity to preserve areas that are because low density development doesn't necessarily come with the controls of what you do with the land and turf grass is kind of a a, this isn't a problem just here this is like i'm from texas huge problem in texas is you can turf grass so much stuff well turf grass is like an ideal for for Anything from stormwater management to to the health of soil to species and all those things. And so only low density development is not generally the the best solution in the long term and overall. We want to make space for dense development in, in places where it works much better so that we can kind of retain and preserve these areas that we can't afford to lose.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, you mentioned mixed use, and I just want to bring up one project that's been in the news lately, local news, is the Quonset Huts. Uh, There's a plan for development there. They're building, I believe it's student housing. And one thing we were talking to people about is like, it would just be nice if they just made the ground floor businesses, because you're losing the businesses there. I think there's a lot of consternation about that. Is there any way for the city to encourage developers? Because I mean, obviously, if they own the land, they can, I guess, do what they want with it, right? But is there any way to encourage them to say, hey, why don't you, in addition to your student housing, have a couple stores on the ground floor? Or is there just no lever to pull to do that?
2: Um, So our zoning doesn't have a a mechanism in it for us to make that a requirement. Hmm. And this goes a little bit back to what I was talking about with access management. The code was saying, shall be encouraged. And then that's the best that you can do. We encourage you to provide cross-access. And I'm like, well, you can't make me because the code says you can't make me. Yeah. So we made the code say that we can make them. And so what I have seen in downtowns in particular is code language that requires the ground floor uses to be non-residential, hmm. or at least the street-facing ground floor uses to be non-residential. And we don't have that currently. So what we get into with kind of very specific end users in mind. So mixed use is kind of put forward with this notion that you, you have people living there who will also dine there, will also shop there, and then you'll also attract other people for a variety of reasons. And it all kind of works together in different ways to make the development financially successful. And when you have a one on, like you're talking about on Center Street, the developer delivers a specific product, and that product is student housing. And so the developer does not deliver commercial space. And when you have very kind of specifically focused developers doing specifically focused projects, you generally don't have an opportunity to add in those other things. And the only leverage we would have for that is if our zoning code had some kind of requirement for ground floor non-residential uses, which we don't currently have.
1: Well, and that does remind me, we were recently informed, and I don't know, I might be getting some details wrong here, but Rogers apparently threw out all of their zoning and took a top down approach to rezoning the entire city for reasons like this. I think because sometimes people don't always want that top down approach like that. In cases like this, we're in almost a state of crisis and we're thinking, okay, we need the additional housing, but then we also don't want to lose out on the mixed use opportunities because we know of all the benefits. So is there any possibility at some point in the future where we as a city can take that initiative? Because I think they hired a consultant, an outside consultant, and just made this happen. Because I'm sitting here taking notes furiously as you're chatting and going, okay, okay, so the next step is we've got to change that wording like y'all did with the access points. We've got to make sure that at least any trail adjacent development requires some form of mixed use. Like, is that something that we could do? Do you know much about that process?
2: Yeah, I do, so, and this is pretty common Let's see, a lot of, in my experience, a lot of cities adopted their current version of their zoning or development code or combined zoning development subdivision codes around 2000. Mm -hmm. So early, early aughts, you're kind of seeing an evolution in codes in cities. And for a lot of cities, that ended up being a unified development code like Fayetteville has. But not all cities have a unified development code. And all that means is that you have a certain set of rules kind of in one place and then you have a separate set of rules and they all kind of govern development all together but they're kind of it's too unified development code just like you throw it all in together and it's like You hear UDC a lot. If you hear UDC, it's Unified Development Code. And that is our code that controls development and and land use or zoning. And so you can kind of get to a point after, let's say, 20 some odd years, 20, 25 years, where you have all these incremental changes and all these incremental improvements and all these incremental, we need a new zoning district, but maybe we didn't. See if we didn't need some other zoning districts, or we want this development standard instead of this development standard. As you do that incrementally over time, it all kind of like adds up. And then um, the way code edits are done, it's like a text edit. And so what happens if you miss part of the text edit that you were meaning to do? Because it's it's not based on intent. It's based on like very literal strike through, highlight kind of process. And so. By the time you get to a point where Fayetteville is, about 25 years down the road, you need to look at your code and you need to say, okay, is our code working for us and is it doing what we want it to do? And I think Rogers said our code isn't doing what we want it to do. So we're going to, in our case, we're going to write a new code and we're going to hire a DPZ to do that. This is a firm who's very well known. So Rogers, I believe, you should talk to them, but Rogers, I believe, is focusing on a form-based code which you'll hear new urbanists talk about a lot. DPZ is, a, is kind of a, a darling of new urbanism. And so they're very experienced with that. And so they're looking at what do buildings look like more than what is the uses in the building. It doesn't mean you don't control the uses. It's just they kind of set their code up differently. And to have kind of a different set of built outcomes and kind of focus on that. And so form-based code is, is not new. It's been around for quite some time but city's been really slow to adopt it and i think because it's pretty challenging to understand how it works, and because zoning started out as a use specific focus. And so, form based code evolves the, the very genesis of what zoning is in America. And so, you can imagine it took us, you know, 100 years to get here, and it's taking like more time to evolve it toward form based. So, I don't know what a top down approach means. I don't know if that means they didn't ask the community what to do or uh, if they just started very quickly. But for Fayetteville, Our community has such a high value for having a voice, and our council has a high value for citizen uh, involvement and public participation. Usually when staff brings something forward and we're like, here's the outreach that we've done and here's the engagement that we've had, we almost always get asked, how can we do more? How can we make sure people are informed? And so for us, there's this like, there's a really time and and labor-intensive kind of part of the work that we do in, in planning especially, which is engagement with our community and what is our community value and what are we trying to achieve and, and what is this thing supposed to look like? And so this 71, I'll take it back to the 71B project, for example. So if the city said, we're going to rezone all of the properties along 71B. And this is hundreds of properties. So that hundreds of properties comes with hundreds of property owners. And so you have to notify them what you're doing. So then you have to set up notification for hundreds of property owners. But we don't just notify property owners. We notify people within a 200-foot radius of the property. So then that expands. Now you have thousands of properties and thousands of property owners that need to have a heads up of what's happening. And then you have to stand up public meetings so that you can have this meeting but you also have to communicate with people and there's letters and there's signs and there's all these and that's just to let people know that there's been a rezoning and that's not to say what should the zoning even be mm-hmm. because we want the entire community to weigh in on that, right? Do we though? <laughs> we do. I know that sounds crazy, but one of the one of the biggest like Fayetteville successful planning efforts was the the downtown plan and this is like held up Actual hundreds of people participated in week long, in a week-long charrette to say, what is the vision for downtown and we, what are we trying to achieve? And so we put all of this effort in because it's important to us for the community to be involved, but it takes a while to kind of get that done. So can you take a fast route and get things done quickly? Yes, can you do that in in partnership with your community? Probably not because it takes time to make sure that we get the voices and get the input. And so, anyway, so for 71B, that is also an effort if, you know, we're talking about a rezoning that's not small by I just mentioned hundreds of parcels, yeah. like potentially thousands, right? And so, that's not a small effort. But it is something that like it's going to take several months to kind of like get that worked up and worked out and and then get all that done. And it's important, valuable work that we want to continue forward with. But if you're going to rewrite your entire zoning code, you have to make a set of decisions before that. And so what are we trying to achieve with that? Like what's the ultimate outcome that we want to achieve? And then what is the timeline that we need to achieve it in? And then who's going to be in charge of it and things like that. And there's always, I think, for us going to be what is the best possible way for us to include as many people and give people a voice and, and an opportunity to engage as we can. And we sometimes spend months thinking through how to do that best.
1: And I love that. And I appreciate that so much about this city. And I definitely will see people online basically implying that they had no awareness of certain decisions made in the city. Sure. We did have a question, because when it comes to city planning, why do so many people feel like they're left out of the process, even though I think we do a phenomenal job, much better than most other cities, of including people through every step of this process? Can you speak to that from your perspective, or is from really just like the city perspective, is there a reason? Well, I think it's because
2: it's massively inconvenient. <laughs> yeah. You
1: mean to, to, to voice your concerns? Well, or? To,
2: to to be involved because if you, oh, yes, if you think yes. about how the city conducts business, we conduct business through meetings. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that they're public meetings or open meetings or, you know, we we usually go above and beyond for requirements for, for public meetings. But if you think about it, we conduct business through meetings. Mm-hmm. Who wants to show up to meetings all the time? Especially when they're like eight hours long. Especially when they're <laughs> eight hours long. And so So if you think about the number of meetings that you would have to attend on a monthly basis to be in the middle of everything, you would have to have a lot of time available for that, i.e. it's your paid job. Mm -hmm. So that is the expectation for your employment is that you're in those meetings. Or you have to have almost every night of your week available because we run meetings every night of the week just about and sometimes on the weekends. And that's not convenient for anybody quite frankly. And so when we think about like why is it so hard or why do people not feel like they're, they're part of it, the communication channels that we have to use for certain things are different from what people, I think, use in their day-to-day lives mm-hmm. also. So when the planning commission has an agenda and that agenda gets posted, it sits online on the city's website in a specific location And it's really hard to tweet about it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really, you know, it's not easy. It's not that you can't share it on Facebook, but then... Uh, who, who's doing that work like there's a lot of labor involved sure. in even you know getting that information out and the state tells us what their expectation is for how we do certain things and that's meetings and that's notification and, and all of this and then we have kind of above and beyond standards that we employ to to do what we think is best and then we're always looking for how do we do better and then you still will have a lot of people who um, either didn't catch the information or or maybe their social media algorithm didn't understand that they want to know what's going on with the city and they missed the social media post because we have a lot of social media activity, too, mm-hmm. with our accounts. And so I think the lack of convenience is, is really kind of the number one. And then, two, a lot of our meetings are, you know, they're staffed by professional staff. And it might be engineers and it might be planners and it might be attorneys and it, it might be parks professionals, you know, who are often landscape architects. Mm-hmm. That's a licensed profession. And so when you consider like all of the degreed, practiced, experienced professionals who are staffing these meetings that we do business in. And if you're coming to see this and you don't have that background, I can imagine it feels really you know, like, how am I supposed to participate? Because I'm already coming into this feeling like I don't know what the rules of the game are. Yes, And so how on earth am I supposed to engage when I'm not even sure when I'm allowed to speak? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure when my topic is coming up. I don't know where the agenda is. I don't. So there are a lot of things about that that I, if I didn't do this professionally, I would find intimidating, overwhelming, and really inconvenient. And that would really dissuade me from participating. And really, the reason I do so much is because this is my job. And it has been for a long time.
0: Yeah. And I really do appreciate how much FAIL is open and mm-hmm. transparent with their meetings. Because I mean, we catch them when we can or replays or bits and pieces. And it is really helpful. And it's really appreciated. I think what you were talking about, about the challenges in trying to get awareness and education about all of the things the city is doing is so difficult, it does come back to this whole thing that I I sort of was talking about before with the barriers to zoning reform and getting closer to the growth concept map is, you know, this whole public feedback mechanism, which in theory is a great thing. I mean, I love the idea of public participation, but the people who come out when you make calls to the public tend to be the ones who are against whatever you're doing. And it's really difficult because a lot of these people I don't think have the education about these issues that they need to, to fully weigh in and have a reasoned opinion in a lot of cases where, you know, I'm an urbanist, I like these things that you're doing, but a lot of people, they get freaked out and they go, absolutely not. It's like a knee jerk thing. And it doesn't matter how many public meetings or hearings you had. And so that's where I'm like, okay, I know we want to be good as a city. I know we want to be engaging the public and that's awesome. But I feel like we have to maybe like find a line in the middle somewhere where we like go like, yeah, these people are upset, but we're going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we're going to piss a few people off, but it's for the greater good. And this is where maybe I'm showing my opinions more. but He's I, showing
1: I, his ass, as they say. Well, I
0: just I just think <laughs> that, you know, sometimes trying to be too open can also backfire and cause things to never get done. And so I worry that we try to go too far in that direction. We're just going to shoot ourselves in the foot. so I will
1: say that's a good point as far as just we won't get things done. And I think that's been the growing sort of sentiment when we when, you, when you hear from people who are wanting all of these changes and they want the urbanism, and then we see the other cities going, okay, we're just going to do this top-down, forum-based code updates. And then it's frustrating because the people here who probably in many ways want it and work for it and behind the scenes are just like having these meetings and everything are going but because we live in such a good kind city that cares so much about public opinion we might be the last to get it, if at all. And there is a growing sort of discontent. And it it's interesting because we kind of hear it from one side and then we project it on these podcasts. And one of the reasons we have this podcast is so that we can have conversations with people like you so that people like them can hear and then people like them, hopefully, we can get on the podcast. But at the end of the day, the last thing I would want to do is shut out people's opinions because I think that's part of what makes Fayetteville so special. So ideally, just a solution would be Figuring out how the heck do we make sure at least anything next to the trail or next to public transportation or bus routes. At the very least, we have mixed use there. And I don't know that there's an easy solution. It sounds like a top-down approach would probably lead to a lot of dissatisfaction from Fay And
2: I don't know that our community would be too in favor of that. And, and there are you know there are times if if you sit in very many public meetings you'll see this Planning Commission city Council otherwise you'll see a lot of times where people will say there's something that they don't like or don't want and maybe the the Planning Commission or the City council will vote a different way and mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. will leave very upset with mm-hmm. that decision and so that certainly happens because I think whichever body it is that's making that decision decision uh, or is tasked with that responsibility is trying to weigh all of the factors that they possibly can mm-hmm. and ultimately arrive at the one that they think is in the public's best interest. And the public being kind of all 100,000 of us, not just our population today, but our population in the future, because we have to have a, a, f- a future focus as well sometimes. So it, entertain this for a minute. Sure. I think we, I think COVID was so hard on us that we're doing our best to forget all of that. Yeah. I think we all just want to move on. And the energy that I've seen in the community kind of as, as we've come out of having to wear masks, mask and we've you know, not been able to go places and we've not had meetings in person, we've had them online, which is an entirely different environment <laughs> to navigate. Um, I think all of... All of the kind of the 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 tamping down and the hunkering down that we had to do for two three years has kind of unleashed itself in so much energy (laughs) and passion that people didn't have the opportunity to express for a few years. Mm -hmm. This went on for a while, and. At the same time that we were having to hunker down, like business still had to be conducted. Like the business of the city had to be conducted. Development applications had to be reviewed. Decisions had to be made. People had to get water. People had to get trash. People had to get recycling. People need to have electricity. They need, you know, so there's all these things that have to go on. But the thing that didn't go on during this whole time really was large scale public meetings and public engagement for big, important projects, because we prioritize people's health and safety over moving forward on some stuff that really was, was set up and, and teed up in 2019 and 2020 to launch off in 2020 and 2021, and that just got paused for a while. And so I think people have not been able to see the city take these big, bold steps that they were accustomed to before 2020 over the last three years, and I can understand how that would be incredibly frustrating. It feels like nothing is being done. Sure. And in many ways, nothing is being done because our opportunity to do that the way that our community has said they value and, and expect has been really limited. And those are the things that I think we're ready to pick back up now and carry forward. And so elements of, of City Plan 2040 and the growth concept map and, and carrying that forward, developing that into a plan that you can implement, I think is is one of those things. Um, The 71B corridor plan, almost all of it got put on pause while we're waiting to to be in a position where we could continue that work. And so now you're gonna see that work come up. And, you know, Parks has been really busy doing master plans for so many city parks. I cannot believe the amount of work they've done in the last year. Because they've now been able to hold those meetings about what a park should be in the future, which Mm -hmm. we were kind of limited on previously. It's not that fun to have a meeting about the future of a park when you can't even be in the park (laughs) together. And so they've been doing kind of incredible planning work. And so there's a lot of planning work that people haven't been able to see the implementation of. And so I think there's a lot of pent up. You know where is the city doing work? Mm -hmm. And I think the work has been done in a way that doesn't have the visibility that our community needs it to have. And I think a lot of those concerns are going to be answered over the next several months as we gear up to get going again. But that has taken a little bit of time to be able to, to get back up and make sure that we've got everybody back in their assigned roles to do the work. So hopefully that's encouraging to people and hopefully that helps explain at least why I think Things are not exactly how a lot of our community would like them to be, just... We have to recognize what happened and we have to kind of make peace with it. And then yeah. we also have to move on. I think we're all really ready to move on. Oh yeah, speaking of moving on, I see that you have moved to a new page and it's
1: got a lot of really cool looking graphics on there. So I derailed us and we went into the weeds quite a bit. So I know we did not get to all of your takeaways from the housing study that you did. I don't know if you have any other questions on our tangent no, before we go back there. I
0: actually was just gonna come back to that and oh, just say like, you yeah. know, uh, what are some of the things you'd like to talk about related to the report specifically that you think is just some bullet points that really you think people should know?
2: I really, uh, I want to come back to your statement about if you're fiscally conservative, there's also an advantage, you know, to you in in kind Mm -hmm. of dense uh, infill uh, development, not extending infrastructure out. And so a lot of people in municipal finance, a lot of people in city planning, a lot of people in city engineering are really familiar with this. But I don't think this is something that everybody's familiar with. So I really want to talk about it, how much it costs to build roads, water, and sewer. (laughs) Yes. Like, when I say how much it costs, these 156 miles that I mentioned, the price tag on that today, the price tag on that right now is 1.1 billion dollars. Oh Yikes. Billion with a B. Wow. And so if you if you think, "Oh, but we're growing even more than We were supposed to. So if you kind of up that into what we're projected to grow to, and again, you build this low-density development, which requires a ton of roads, water, sewer from the city, then we're almost at like $2 billion under that scenario. And so that's billion dollars to get it built today. And then that's not including what it costs to maintain over its lifetime. And when you do a massive like waterline replacement project, These are not things that can be done quickly and easily. They take a lot of time, they bother a lot of people, and they cost millions of dollars with an M. But total roads, water, and sewer, we're talking in the billions of dollars at that scale. And we don't want to spend billions of dollars. We maybe want to spend a few millions of dollars on it. If you think about the opportunity cost of spending all of your city's available funding on asphalt (laughs) and pipe... Uh That doesn't leave a lot for the things that we also really have a high value for, and that's our parks, and that's on creating great spaces, that's on the city supporting the arts community, even things like animal shelters are, you know, the things that, that we love as people and the things that we want the city to support You don't want your city in in the current term or in the long term to be faced with, well, we would really like to support that effort. But unfortunately, we've burdened ourselves with an infrastructure bill that has to be paid. And so that's where all of our funding has to go. And so what we're essentially saying is we also don't want to spend our money that way. Now we're in the long term and we would rather make the most efficient use of what we're kind of on the books for as possible to free up that money for Things that we like more, and so those are kind of some of the, the balances that we have to make, and that's part of basically what we're we're laying out as, as a policy decision. You can decide to spend your money on these things, or we can decide to spend our money on other projects that we think provide even greater value to the community now and in the long term. But when you, I mean, I had to, I, I looked at that number probably seven times because it's <laughs> like surely it's not 1.1 <laughs> billion dollars. That's No. And so after a lot of math checking, that was how it came out.
0: Wow. That's, I mean, that's, if that doesn't tell you that we need to do more infill, I don't know what what does, but.
2: And again, infill isn't just about slamming houses between existing houses. Mm -hmm. It's a lot about taking very low intensity land uses that are in the middle of the city. If you think about, like, we've got some really large commercial parking lots Mm -hmm. that Don't have cars in them. Yes. And it's not like, well, the. Do they do at Christmas no not even at Christmas they don't you know so we've got lots of paved land area in the middle of the city and wouldn't it be so cool if instead of being acres of asphalt that that don't get a lot of activity they could be like very cool spaces to live and be mm-hmm. if Fayetteville had that vision and that vision is still valid and important and relevant we just like I said had to put a pause on it mm-hmm. and that's I think what using this growth concept map is about right it's about creating great urban space and the tools to get us there. I do think that we have to take what's currently basically a concept map, but it, it is it's a conceptual thing. These are These are kind of dots on a map that don't have a defined radius. There's a lot of detail that I think we want to work out. I think that in itself is probably its own planning project or planning process. But if I can tie it into the 71B, corridor plan again there are i think four possibly five i know there's at least four of these growth nodes or tier centers along 71b that we're talking about so you don't have to separate it out as its own project to start moving forward Mm -hmm. on it we can get moving forward on for those tier centers with this single project which will touch so many things and when we're talking about efficient projects this is like you know, the, the, the winner, right, because, like, look at all these different goals that you can accomplish with this one focused kind of coordinated effort versus having to do a bunch of separate efforts, which, again, is not nearly as efficient. And I think that's why we have focused so strongly and, and are so confident in saying, you know, staff really wants to see us do this because we think it will accomplish the most the fastest, and get us much further along as quickly as I can. So we do spend quite a bit of time thinking through, well, how can we, how can we do that as quickly and efficiently as possible? And how can we deliver results? You know, if if nothing else, then just build confidence that we are doing the work. And so we think that the 71B rezoning in particular has just some really great opportunity to help kind of address the lag time that we've had over the last two to three years.
0: With respect to that project, is there more than just the zoning? Are there partnerships with Existing landowners there, where they say, "Hey, as soon as you do this, I'm ready to break ground on a project." Because I think the public would probably want to see something happen fast once the zoning happens. And I know that's not always the case, but it'd be nice if there was a partnership between some of the existing landowners and that say, "Hey, I'm just been, I'm just waiting for you, and as soon as you give me the okay, I'm going to start building."
2: That that would be ideal. I don't know if we'll get there or not, if I can just be really honest. sure. Just because we want to do something and see the benefit of it doesn't mean that property owners either share that opinion or have the same goals. Mm -hmm. And so why do things take so long? Because we spend a lot of time talking to property owners before we do stuff. And you're at least trying to be in contact, try to communicate what the plan is. So there is a section of 71B College Avenue. That we're already working on, we've got construction plans almost complete, and that's to do basically a, a pretty substantial roadway improvement between North Street and Sycamore Street. So it's going right past the VA hospital, it's going past Evelyn Hills, and it'll kind of stop just north of McDonald's, kind of right where the Radio Shack is. And so in order to go through all of the work that it takes to get the drawings sorted out and all the all the grades figured out for the sidewalks and the sidewalk widths and all the poles and all the driveways and, and this, that, and the other, it's like a, a lot of work and takes a lot of time. And we try to communicate with every single property owner. And at the time that we do that, we're also sharing future concept ideas. So. If if we're going to come in and put this investment in, and if your property is along the stretch where a lot of work's going to be done, and you're going to be inconvenienced by construction for a period of time, because it's just the the reality of the situation, it's very inconvenient to have to do uh, road construction projects. But if you're going to be inconvenienced for a period of time and all this, let's talk about what the future looks like. So we'll often talk through you know opportunities to rezone. Are you interested in changing your zoning to allow other uses? Would you be interested in allowing housing? And sometimes people are interested but they may not have the capacity or the immediate opportunity to to make the the scale of investment that's needed to redevelop their property. Maybe they have a tenant that they really, really, really like and don't want to do anything that would displace their tenant. We have a lot of small businesses on College Avenue. So sometimes people just have that loyalty to their tenants and want them to continue there and, and aren't interested in doing things. Sometimes it's just not within the property owner's goal at all in the long term to change what their property is, because maybe it's, you know, it's, as successful as they need it to be it does what they need it to do and and they're just not looking for anything else what is important about the city doing this work i think is that something we hear from the development community is rezonings are one of the most uncertain attempts that they can possibly make because when you say i want to rezone my property there's no guarantee that that will ultimately be approved and so We call that the entitlement process. You're entitling your property to a a kind of a developable level. And so your zoning has a lot to do with entitlement, what you're allowed to do with it. And if, if people feel uncertain about what they will be able to do, it makes them a lot more hesitant to spend the money to do the planning work, to create the development, et cetera. So our hope is that if we proactively rezone to that, doesn't reduce what you're allowed to do, but instead expands what you're allowed to do even more, gives you a lot more options. And you would think, well, that would make your property a lot more valuable. Yes. But some people see the value that that creates and they get really excited about it. Some people, that's just really not within their vision and goal for the property. And then sometimes people see the city take an investment step like that and they go, I want to be mm-hmm. in on this. Mm-hmm. So what that has the potential to do is send a really strong signal that we are serious about those investments and that other people might want to look at okay, well if the city's going to take care of the enti- part of the entitlement process for me then maybe this is where I want to be and where I want to build. And then you're kind of creating this um, kind of incentive and this this big carrot for people to go, oh, well, this might be really cool. But at the end of the day, that is going to be up to the property owners. And as much as we are um, here to work through exactly the kind of partnership you're described, it's just the reality that um, a lot of times property owners are focused on what they're doing, and mm-hmm. that's not within kind of what their plans are
0: and i wonder you know if you're someone with very deep pockets and you're want to buy a parcel on 71b and i i'll give you way more than it's worth i want this thing but it's not rezoned yet and in order for me to buy it it has to be zoned for more density because it'll make my investment worthwhile that's always baffled me a little Mm -hmm. bit because it's like Before you can close escrow, you need to know if it can get rezoned, but you can't know if it's going to get rezoned. Until you go through the whole process, which takes months. Is there any kind of, like, way a buyer can figure that out? ahead? Like, can they, not as the property owner, but, but as a potential interested buyer, ahead of time, just, like proactively say, well, would you be okay with this type of thing? I don't know if that exists, but I always wonder that.
2: Well, people call our office all the time Mm -hmm. and and ask questions like that. Or let's say somebody sees a property up for sale, either on MLS or through some other means or they hear about it. So they might call our office and they might say, hey, I'm interested in this property and they'll provide information and they'll say, and here's what I want to do with it. So the first thing we do is pull up our city zoning map, which is available online, but a lot of people don't know. You can just Mm -hmm. go online and see all this information or they may not be familiar with zoning enough to feel confident doing that themselves. So they give us a call and they say, hey, I'm, I'm curious, like, what can I do with this property? Or here's what I want to do with the property. Would that be allowed? And a lot of the time, what they want to do is not something that the current zoning would allow. And so it's like, if you want to do that, this is the zoning that it is today. And here's the zoning it would have to be. So here's an example. I'm looking at this property and I pull it up on the map and it's C2, which is kind of a... a kind of mid, mid-intensity commercial zoning district in Fayetteville. Well, C2 doesn't give you much opportunity in the way of housing. And let's say this person says, okay, I want to do a mixed-use development. I want to do ground floor commercial. Then I want to do two floors of offices. And then I want to do two floors of apartments above that. And be like, that sounds really great, but we're going to have to look at that residential piece of it because the office and the ground floor retail sounds great, but we have to see if... There's anything in our code that would kind of give you an ability to do that kind of upper floor residential. Or maybe the amount of residential you're doing is not the primary use of the property. And so we have to kind of navigate through that. And if the answer is we can't do what you want to do with the property with the zoning today, it, would, it wouldn't allow it. You would have to rezone. And then here's the, you know, maybe there's three or four different zoning categories. You could rezone, to depending on what your ultimate goals were what you want to try to work with. And then they might be like, okay, well, how long does that take? Like two weeks? (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, well, you have to submit the application, and then we have to review it to make sure it's complete. You have to do public notification for the planning commission. It has to be scheduled for the planning commission. It has to go to agenda session. It has to go to the planning commission. They have to take public comment on it. Then they may or may not make a decision in that meeting and then after that, it goes. It gets submitted to the city council, and then that takes like three weeks because the different, you know, how meetings are scheduled. And then it goes to the city council, and then it's an ordinance, so it has to have three readings. And the council may choose to do all three readings in one night, or they may choose to do them all in three separate meeting dates, and then there's public comment on that as well. And then by the time you get through all of that, people are like, well, what is that, like three months? And you're like, yeah, probably like three months, but it depends on if you get an immediate decision from the Planning Commission and the council. And they're like, so four months? And I'm like, maybe. <laughs> And then, but they're going to say yes, right? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, why, pretty... don't, why don't you know? Because I, if I knew, I would be in a different line of work and it would probably be sports betting. Well, and, so... I, and I think
0: this highlights how important it is to yeah. get ahead of the zoning, like what you're starting to do with 71B, where you make it easy for buyers mm-hmm. to potentially buy.
2: So imagine you call our office and you say, I want to do this mixed-use development on this property on College Avenue. And I don't know what the zoning is. Can you help me out with that? And I'm like, well, you're zoned for this and it'll allow you to do all these things. And they're like, oh, that's exactly what I wanted to do. And then all of a sudden, they're not looking at having to do this you know, potentially four-month process through the city council and through the planning commission. They're looking at, oh, so I just have to get my design team together to do a design that meets the requirements so that I can get approved and then I can get my building permits and then I can go along my way. And all of a sudden, that starts to look a lot better than... I don't know if I'm even going to get approved for my rezoning.
0: Totally. Well, thank you. That's good information.
2: Well, moving back to the idea of this housing
1: report, how do you feel like the findings are going to inform your long-range planning in general and just the future of Fayetteville?
2: I think this has a great potential to inform better partnering, honestly, and better collaboration with So I've got colleagues in economic vitality and community resources who are also looking at housing. So housing is not just a long-range planning effort. This is not something that it is ours and ours alone. This is, this is going to take everybody, right? And so if economic vitality is looking at, you know, we need a great workforce to not only attract great employers, but to also have a thriving economy. People need good paying jobs. How do we do that? Well, if your workforce can't afford to live in your community, that's also an economic problem, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're invested in this. Um, Our community resources team uh, administers our CDBG grants. I can't believe I said that correctly. (laughs) Community development block grants from HUD. This is a primary support source for uh, housing and housing-related programs. So it's home repair which is how we help people stay in affordable housing. We cannot expect people to stay in housing that is low cost, but also uninhabitable because of the Mm -hmm. conditions. And home repair programs funded through federal CDBG funds are a way that we can get people housing safe and up to standard so that they aren't displaced, they don't have to leave, and it doesn't really cost people any more. And so they've had incredible success in the last couple of years in being able to implement that program in our community. And I think the projects have totaled over $100,000 in the last two years. And so that's a great example, but more resources are needed. Well, more resources really needs a lot of definition. So when we look at how many people in our community need housing, and what is the cost of housing that they need it to be for it to be affordable for their incomes, we can start to develop some specific targets and we can start to actually put together a a plan of action. And sometimes, Unfortunately, for, for cities in Arkansas, sometimes the answer is, well, the state doesn't give us the ability to do that, either under their state constitution or other rules that the legislature you know, passes during their sessions. So what are the other opportunities to do that? Are there other partnerships needed that someone else could do the work, but we could find a way to support it? But again, if, if you just say, well, more people need housing, we can't really act on that. We need to start giving some real specifics. And so I'm hoping that this report gives some real specifics that help us move a lot of those things forward. I'm really encouraged by not only the support in getting this report put out by Economic Vitality, but their interest in how that kind of ties in with the work that they're doing. And so then the other thing that I really want to see from this is I would like to see the other communities in Northwest Arkansas do this work also so that we have a regional collection of here's what our need is and here's where we're all sitting. Because it's different for every city. And if you look in the report, I have a couple of graphs in here that show Fayetteville's median income over time has been and is lower than the other three largest cities in northwest Arkansas. Well, why? Why is our median income lower than Bentonville, than Rogers, than Springdale? And, and they line out like that. Bentonville's at the top, Rogers is right below, and then Springdale, and then Fayetteville at the bottom. And so I don't think that that's a negative thing necessarily, but it does kind of raise some interesting questions. And is it because we have a lot of students? We've got 30,000 students, that's 30% of our population. And so is it because we have students and students tend to be lower incomes and they're younger and they're not far enough along in their professions that they're kind of making those mid-tier incomes? Is it because um, we have so many Walmart and, and Tyson executives that are living in Bentonville and Rogers? Or is it other reasons um, that I wouldn't be able to speak to um, at this point? But if you understand, like, here's Fayetteville's need, and this is information that other cities can Easily replicate. I even have like which ACS data tables I was using referenced in here, right? Like all my sources are there. So if we did that at a regional level and could understand better what our regional needs are, I think that would be better for all of us. And the Urban Land Institute's Community of Practice on Housing last year was looking specifically at, at something like that. How do you do that? So. Here it is. Everybody go copy me real quick and then let's put it all together and see where we're at. But I think the policy decisions that Fayetteville is going to make over the next couple of years are going to have some basis in the information that we have today. And then I think long-range planning's work is going to need to continue to kind of capture and assess and evaluate and report on this information so that we know how things are changing moving forward. One of the biggest surprises when the 2022 ACS data came out, and this, I just had like days of panic until I figured this out. It looked like Fayetteville's median household income Dropped like $8,400 in one year. And it looked like we went from $61,428 in 2021 to like $52,000 something dollars in, in 2022. And having to explain to everybody that our median household income, our midpoint of household incomes just dropped like several thousand dollars is not something, is not a position that any planner ever wants to be in. So what do you do? You look at history. You go back and you see what the data was. And so if you look at the data trend line for the last dozen years, our 2022 median household income is right on the trend line. And 2021 was an anomaly. Why was 2021 mm-hmm. an anomaly? So then you're going through all the research papers and you're put, you know, census, you know, blogs and all these tr- things trying to find it out. And it turns out Springdale had the a very similar issue where their median household income jagged up in 2021 and then dropped back down not as as much as ours did but it still had a very similar pattern and then rogers actually went down in 2021 and then like zoomed back up in 2022. So ultimately, we think it's a couple of things. One, there were a lot of kind of tax benefits from the federal government in 2021 that kind of weren't in place in 2022. But the other thing is, we think that there was just a correction in the data. We think that that something went a little bit off somehow. And maybe these are, ACS is based on surveys, survey estimates, right? Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't mean that they're wrong or that it's bad data. It just means that some of the data is more correct than others. And it looks like 2021 just had some challenges in in the reporting for that year for some reason. But ultimately, you know, it's kind of like, well, 2022 is not only in the trend line, but we can see examples of this happening in other cities at the same time period. And so what it looks like is we're basically back on track for, for what we should be doing. But we have to look at the that information constantly and we have to see are we going above or below because from 2021 to 2022 we grew by 78% more than we were projected to grow you have wow. to you have to keep tabs on that because if we stay at that 78% We have to do things differently than if we come back down to like, you know, even 20%. Right. Mm -hmm. And so keeping track of that and being able to continue to put data to our experience is really important to decision making so that we're making focused decisions. And it is really hard to do. Long range planning work when you have a bunch of different things you're trying to chase at once, you kind of have to set a course and follow that course. And what we're trying to do here is say, here's the course that we want to set based on having all of this information over a period of time, having all of these you know, things kind of come to fruition and evidence themselves over a period of time. We think this is the best way to go, because once you start doing this you're you're kind of locked in for months and months of work. And by the time you get those water lines installed so that you're supplying all those new apartment units, you're several years down the road. And so the decisions that we make today are really critical to what things are going to look like over the next decade. And I'm hoping that the information that we've been able to gather and assess is a good starting point to say, Yes, this is the direction that we want to go. And if it's not, what other information do we need? Because sometimes the answer is we don't have enough information, actually, and we still need more. If so, what does that look like so we can get that information so that we can act? Because I think we're all ready, like I said, to move on and move forward and and get something done.
0: That's great. And, I mean, if you're someone who's listening to this, you're an individual, a developer, a planner, whoever it may be. And you're thinking, okay, I really want to help make a change. I want to help make all of these dreams that we have come true. 71B, get affordable housing, you know, through density and other things. You know, what is the best way for them to support the city's effort to move toward the 2040 plan and the other plans that come out of this? And, you know, there's a lot of grassroots momentum and a lot of people are unsure how to focus their energy. So curious to hear what your recommendations would
2: be? Uh, Board and commission openings are posted quarterly, so get on a board or commission. I think that's a really fun way to serve as a kind of past commissioner myself for other cities, not for the city of Fayetteville, but in other cities. That's really how I got on the public side was I was a I was a Main Street board member, and then I was a historic district commissioner, and then I got into planning, and now I do this professionally, and now I get to sit in all of the meetings. <laughs> well, what if somebody
1: doesn't know what they don't know, but they know they have a passion for it? Because I think there are a lot of people who, in theory, would join a board but they're going oh, I don't really no i'm gonna feel like an idiot kind of thing well I, th-
2: I think you should test it out and the great thing about fayetteville is that we're really committed to transparent public meetings and mm-hmm. we put all these things on zoom uh some of them are on youtube you can just watch on youtube Uh, We put past meetings online. So I think a great way to get your your toe dipped in, just see who's in the room and what the conversations are. Mm -hmm. Watch online, Mm -hmm. which you can do at your own convenience, you know, and you don't necessarily have to watch a live meeting because it is recorded. Um, The microphones are good. The cameras are kind of wild, but the microphones are good. And so um, I say that because we have these like interesting owl devices in some of our commission meeting rooms. And so sometimes you'll see you're in the meeting and up on the screen, you'll see the owl kind of looking around as people are talking and then. I'm like, sometimes my face looks really big on the screen. <laughs> but if you're at home on Zoom, watch you don't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of creep on meetings and kind of get the vibe, right? Mm-hmm. You can see what the discussions are and what's going on. And then you'll pick up the language pretty quickly. Agendas are posted online. And then if you you know, feel like, oh, I've, I found one that this is, this is interesting stuff. I, I want to know more. Every commission has a staff liaison. And so you can reach out to that staff liaison and and say, hey, I'm I'm really interested in participating. What does it look like for me to participate? How can I do that? These are public meetings. The public is welcome to attend. Usually people don't. I sit in three to six maybe commission meetings a month, and I almost never see guests. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, who wants to sit in just endless meetings all the time? But I think what people see is like, I don't see people in the meeting probably feels more like I'm also not welcome to be in the meeting versus no just people either don't have time or aren't able to make time to be there at their schedule you know some of our commissioners can't always be there because schedule conflicts right so start creeping on meetings on your own time figure out like whose vibe you like or who's talking about things that you're interested in and then if you can get to a point where it's like well I can probably make a meeting live either join the meeting on zoom live or in person and then so although some of our meetings are just online because that's the most convenient for the commission. So you can do that and then reach out to the staff contact and see how you can learn more or see if there's a way for you to be involved. And something that I think has been really fun this year. So I staff the planning commission's long range committee and we meet once a month after their second agenda session of the month. So it's usually around the third or fourth Thursday and we meet right after agenda session. So it's also like the time isn't specific. We might meet you know at 5 we might meet at 5:30 it depends on how long agenda session goes but we sit there and we talk about like really interesting planning things And so local architect Allie Quinlan brought a proposal to them a couple of months ago. And she said, Mm -hmm. she said, I think the city of Fayetteville's rules for townhomes aren't what they need to be. And I think they should be this other way instead. And so she brought like a code amendment and she and I talked about it beforehand. Like we didn't just be like, you know, Allie figured out, but Allie's also served on the planning commissions. She knew what she was doing, but she and I talked about it and I said, yeah, let me help with this. And we'll kind of prep this and we'll have a discussion with everybody. And they want to continue to pursue it. So we're working through the process of, what a code amendment would look like that she brought forward and then David Criswell with uh, Northwest Arkansas Trailblazers also came awesome. and talked to them mm-hmm. about bike parking yeah. and gave them yes. a whole new perspective I think I saw that one I so on Yeah, and so that's an opportunity and it and it wasn't like well we'll only let you in if you're you know a professional planner or an architect no no like these are members of the community mm-hmm. who have an interest and a proposal to make and I you know so I'll put you on the agenda we'll talk through what that looks like what your presentation needs to look look like and then have that proposal now people do have to understand we have we have commission work to do and we have agendas and so i may not be able to immediately get you on an agenda but i do want to talk to you about your ideas and then i think when you see the this kind of sequence of commission meetings and the work that we do and the fact that we're only meeting once a month so like we're doing a lot of business with just like an hour, once a month meeting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and carrying a lot forward. But if you want to know how zoning code changes get made in Fayetteville, they start at these monthly long range planning committee meetings. And when the commissioners are are kind of satisfied that we we are on top of what we're doing they have something that they're ready to support it goes to their regular monday night meeting and then one of uh, our staff will make a presentation on it they'll discuss and deliberate they'll take public comment another place that you can you know weigh in yeah. and say you know i like this proposed zoning code change or i don't like this proposed zoning change or I think this is a good idea but I think you got it slightly wrong and here's how I would do it differently. Mm-hmm. They'll consider all of that. Yeah. It sounds
0: like I think one takeaway too is like have an actionable thing to discuss. Don't yes. just come with pine I mean pine the sky ideas are great but it feels like there should be an actionable element because like you said people are busy and they need something to grab onto, well, right? Well, and,
2: and I I have to I have to bring something to the planning commission that either looks like we have an idea are you, are you willing for us to bring back a more fully fleshed out idea? Like, do you initially support this in general? And we'll bring back more details to you. Or I have to have something that like the text is written for them to read and consider. So we don't, we don't sit and talk about kind of nebulous ideas a whole lot. Sometimes we do to get to a point, but a lot of times we're there doing the business of rewriting code, mm-hmm. like very specifically. And the expectation is that if staff is going to propose something to the commission, we're setting that up that it's ready to go. They're not doing the administrative work for it. And so when Allie came, Allie came with a proposed code amendment and the, the text edits were right there for consideration. Mm-hmm. And when David came, he came with model ordinances and mm-hmm. he came with, uh, how, here's how other cities do it. And we have something to go off of. And then he had a recommendation. Here's how other cities do it. Here's where I think Fayetteville would be best positioned to at least get started, and here's what that looks like. And so his idea wasn't as specific as, like, the code text amendment has been written, but it was to the point that that's the next step. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as we have... They're busy with a couple of things right now. We've, we've got to get some business taken care of, but that's something that we'll take back up and look at a potential text amendment here kind of in the in the near future. And that's where some of these things, you know, really need to be and i'm available to help work with that but i think that's kind of the challenge too people might think that we're talking about ideas we are talking about ideas a lot but we're talking about ideas that have a, a firm basis in the administrative work being complete or with the expectation that it's going to be completed because we don't ask our commissioners generally to write their own code amendments it's that's a pretty lengthy process that you have to go through to sort all that out
0: that's really helpful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, I was also curious if, you know, we talk about zoning a lot. If there is a zoning uh, request to, to rezone something and, you know, the community gets really excited about it because it's, you know, density and we're like, hey, finally we're getting density in this area. But we see that there's a bazillion people that are pushing back. It's a big thing. But we still are like, we really think it's good for the long term vitality of Fayetteville, all that stuff, you know can does going to a meeting and voicing support have really realistically any impact on how people vote like do like I always wonder because I feel like some people just come in with a preconceived like this is how I'm going to vote and I always wonder and maybe you don't know the answer to this but I just I'm so curious like is it worth people's time and energy to go to these meetings to support to uh, express support
2: I think it's always worth your time to express your position, whatever your position is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I I try to. I have my job, and my job is to make recommendations on certain things, and I make those recommendations according to you know my, my best professional knowledge and what the public's interest is, et cetera, et cetera. Not individual interests, what the public's interest is, and and that could be really challenging because I know sometimes it looks like staff is really trying to screw the community. And we are not. I don't work with a single person who doesn't care deeply about the community and the impacts of the work that we do on our community. But we are trying to weigh a lot of things and sometimes what we're trying to weigh and, and, and what we ultimately feel that, you know, is kind of the best outcome made on out a line with some of our community members. And we know that and, and we feel that. That's not something that we ignore or take for granted at all. But when you come to comment, whatever your comments are gonna be, it absolutely has a lot of value because I've seen public comment change decisions countless number of times. Even if you feel like this is a foregone conclusion, I think what you're probably seeing is the information that the people making the decisions have when they arrive to make the decision probably leads them toward a certain outcome already because they've probably done their homework. They've probably also gotten a lot of comment and listened to people. So, something that I think a lot of people don't realize is that if you wait until the meeting to make your comments, the people making the decision may have already heard from a lot of other people and those people may or may not hold the same position as you so you can always email or or get communication earlier on you don't have to wait till the public meeting to let people know how you think that they should vote or what what you think the outcome should be if you're waiting till the meeting and you feel like the decision's already been made, it's probably because a lot of people Mm -hmm. have already been talking about it. And so when you want to weigh in and add your voice is important, and if you wanna do that earlier, do that earlier. And if you wanna do it at the meeting, I think just strategy-wise, if you're hearing a lot of people make the same comments, it's not that it's not important that you don't have the same information or, or have the same viewpoint, but you can imagine if people have already heard the same comment seven or eight times, there's not a lot of new information being presented, then it doesn't generally help move the conversation forward. It doesn't help shift the conversation a lot. So when you're making public comment, if you can bring something new or a new perspective or give people something else to think about or something else to consider, I think that can be a lot more impactful than repeating similar comments. Um, Also, pro tip, never say you're going to be short ever. It sets the wrong <laughs> expectation. And and I've done this myself. And this is why I'm telling you. Pro tip, never say that. <laughs> never say you'll be brief. Never say your comments are going to be short. Because when people think short, they think like, 15 to 20 seconds. And so if you go over 15 to 20 seconds, yeah. you've just done the exact opposite of what you told me you were going to do. And then mm. don't, so just just don't set up that expectation to begin with. Don't ever say you're going to be short. They'll cut you off when your time is up. Mm-hmm. Let somebody else worry about that. Mm-hmm. You don't worry about that. Just come with whatever comments you have. Take the time that you need, the time that you're allowed, and and don't worry about being short because the worst thing I have ever done in presenting in a meeting is say, well, this is going to be brief. And then realizing that brief to everybody else was like 20 seconds. And then I talked for seven minutes and then, you know, so just don't do that to yourself and it will help you a lot.
0: (laughs) Expectation management. I love it. Well, I wanted to just come back to one thing from earlier before I forget. And that is we talked about the cost burden in Fayetteville and in terms of affordable housing and things like that. One thing I'm always curious about, and I may have asked you this on our previous episodes, but I'm not sure, but for MSAs of a similar size and cities of a similar size are we in an unusually high cost situation you know or is this a universal thing after covid because i always wonder you know is it is this a problem widespread in a lot of these metros or is it just that we have so much more growth than a lot of these places that we're having more problems?
2: I love this question so much. (laughs) I love this question so much. I have two entire tables in the report dedicated to this. (laughs) So we compared Fayetteville to the other three largest cities in our region in Northwest Arkansas because we wanted to see kind of, okay, where do we land compared to them? And here's, here's some stats for you. So the population growth rate from 2020, which was the decennial census, to 2022, which is the American Community Survey Estimate. So we typically say the census is a count, even though there's some math estimating going on because everybody doesn't respond. And then the ACS is a population estimate. It's done by surveys, also with some really great statistical math. But usually the census is like, OK, this is where we like land ourselves solidly. And then for the next 10 years, we have these kind of like good estimates. So 2020 to 2022 population growth rate. For Fayetteville it was 5.68%, for Springdale it was 4.7%, for Rogers it was 4.42%, and for Bentonville it was 6.84%. So, Bentonville's growth rate was slightly higher than ours, but their population change, just in sheer numbers, was smaller than ours because Bentonville is like just over half of our population Mm -hmm. so their growth rate is higher even though they added fewer people overall Mm -hmm. so Fayetteville is still growing by the most people annually of all cities in our region now you might have to look at Centerton because I think Centerton is growing pretty fast but they they aren't like a pure city because we're positioned very very differently and so they weren't part of what I was looking at but when you look at the percent of households that are cost burdened so I'll do 2021 to 2022. So for Fayetteville, 29.7% of the households were cost burdened by housing costs in 2021. It was 38% in 2022. Springdale was 30.9% in 2021 and then down to 28.9% in 2022. Rogers was 21.8% up to 22.7%. So they're like 16% lower cost burden households in Rogers than here in Fayetteville. And then Bentonville was 30.3% in 2021. Like I said, they didn't have data available for the report for 2022. So Probably I higher. Don't, maybe. So it's kind of funny that like Rogers is so much lower um, than we are. And so, but they were high in, in 2021. So I would expect that they're probably gone up. Now they may be closer to us kind of in in what that looks like, but then that wasn't enough. So we did more. Um, And we looked at what our our kind of pure cities across the country are. And when I say pure cities, let's say a similar population size, and let's say uh, they have a a university, like a a large land-grant public university, because you can't compare us to cities that don't. Now, the funny thing is, if you look at cities across the U.S. that are about our size, they're probably going to have a big public university, too. Mm -hmm. Those just kind of go hand-in-hand. So, for growth rates, we had the highest growth rate of the cities that, that I was comparing us to. And this is also, so this is, I looked at the United States, Arkansas. And then there's Fayetteville. And then compared us to Lawrence, Kansas, Columbia, Missouri, Fort Collins, Colorado, Lincoln, Nebraska, Asheville, North Carolina, College Station, Texas, whoop, <laughs> and Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So the only city that was growing faster than us out of those in the United States and Arkansas was Tuscaloosa, Alabama. They had 11.3%. Oh zero five percent growth and we had 5.68 everybody else was growing either like between one and two percent or they were actually declining in population like oh, wow. asheville north carolina declined in population by almost one percent oh wow from 2020 to 2022 so the even college station only grew by 3.16 hmm. percent. and so i don't know what's going on in tuscaloosa i guess university of alabama is blowing up but But that, so we're growing faster than kind of a lot of cities that we would say are peers. And then when I looked at cost burden households, what was really crazy is that we're all kind of sitting in a similar range, which is. Kind of weird. And we're, we're pretty comparable. So in the United States, in 2021, 30.9% of households were cost burdened by housing costs. And in 2022, it was 31.5%. So almost a third of households in the United States are cost burdened. In Arkansas, the numbers are, lightly, are slightly slower. It was 25.1% in 2022. And then in Fayetteville, as a reminder, we were 38%. Mm-hmm. So more households in Fayetteville are cost burdened by housing costs as a proportion than in the state of Arkansas. And so you end up with like between thirty and thirty-eight percent for all the cities I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Asheville, North Carolina, that co- uh, households cost burden by housing costs dropped from thirty-three point three percent in twenty twenty-one to twenty-four point eight percent in wow. twenty twenty-two. Strange. And they had the one percent population decline, huh. mm-hmm. i.e., less demand on their housing. Mm-hmm. And then College Station actually had the highest rate of cost burden households. in 2021 and 45.5% in 2022. And they're, so they're 120, they're about 125,000 people, but their university enrollment is more than double ours. And that is a question that I have because I know, well, I can infer that
1: some of this is the increased university enrollment and we do have more students coming in. They're competing for the houses. So How much is the university playing or not playing a role in things like addressing housing shortages? Are they able to? Is that
2: kind of in their purview? So the university can choose to build additional housing. I think the thing that's been concerning to them and a lot of other universities is this kind of enrollment cliff. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is there are so many fewer children born during certain time Mm -hmm. periods that... The, the number of, of college students is expected to just kind of like drop off, mm-hmm. like kind of typical age college students, 18 year olds. So like we don't have as many people in high school today as we would need to match with like how many students are in college. Yeah. And so-
0: it's kind of good news in a way for housing costs in the future.
2: You, you would think, but so here's, here's what I think could be tricky about that though. I think the University of Arkansas is nationally really attractive so we may not have as many high school students in the in the high school to college pipeline in arkansas Mm -hmm. but texas has got plenty of them and if you're nationally competitive which the university of arkansas has positioned itself to be and the southeast conference the sec has positioned itself to be you see sec schools growing by leaps and bounds i.e you know tuscaloosa over here with 11.05 percent population growth in two Mm -hmm. years you see growth like that and you see growth in college station you see growth in these like really attractive schools with great programs in beautiful locations. So you could live in Fayetteville College Station or in Tuscaloosa. Where are you picking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fayetteville. <laughs> and so I think we're nationally competitive. And so while population wise, like in terms of fertility rates, we may be getting a lot fewer college students. I don't know that we aren't going to attract nationally and continue to have a lot of college right. students. And so where's the university's role in that? I actually got to meet with their their housing assessment team or their kind of their housing study team, which I really appreciated. And they're looking at what do we do because they have about 6,200 beds on campus, but 32,000 students. Yeah. So 80% of the enrolled students have to find housing off campus. Mm-hmm. And we're getting calls about, you know, like too loud college parties in places that have never had too loud college parties (laughs) before in Fayetteville, because students are trying to find housing wherever they can, and so I think, you know, continue to build housing because we still need housing, but the I think the university is in the process of deciding what that looks like for them in the long term and what their strategies are going to be. And they're in the middle of studying that right now, so I don't expect we're going to know immediately. But they have told us, they have confirmed that they are expecting 36,000 students by 2025. And so, yes, more students, which means students need a place to live because currently there's no additional capacity on campus for them to be housed.
0: And last time we spoke with you on the podcast, you mentioned that, you know, if there's a risk in building student-only housing because of the, the way that it's leased and yes. all that. And yes. so there is, there probably does have to be some careful consideration there about like, okay, yeah, we're growing now, but we might not be. and we... I,
2: I don't think people want to be stuck because buildings last a long time. Yeah. And I don't think people want to be stuck with that. And so, but like Fayetteville is having to take that pain on in mm-hmm. the meantime, right? right? And so in our communities, of course, they're upset about that. Um, So, yeah, I I don't like student-oriented housing as a housing type because it's not very resilient. Mm -hmm. And a lease-by-the-bedroom model doesn't work for even non-traditional households. It doesn't necessarily work very well. Um, But when you kind of have these like resort-amenitized apartment complexes that are delivering that as a product and not a mixed use development or, or things that kind of work for an urban lifestyle a little bit better. Yeah, it gives me a lot of concerns because I look at what our future could be and our future could look different than it is today. And how do we make sure our housing units are resilient for that future condition mm-hmm. um, so that we're not having to do this again because of dumb reasons. Like, we just don't have the right housing. We have enough mm-hmm. housing, but we don't have the right housing. Like, that's so painful. Yeah.
0: Well, hopefully the 71B corridor will be some of that right housing in the longer yeah. term, maybe even in the short term if we get lucky. But, uh, we're you know, just to close out things, we normally ask a couple of questions, but we've asked you those before. So just for this, we're going to do something fun. Just what are you looking forward to for
2: 2024? I am really excited that we're doing big projects with big impacts, and we're at a point that we no longer have to worry about whether to do a meeting in person or virtually because mm-hmm. we don't know where COVID is going to be. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I hate to harp on something that we're all ready to move on from. But we, I think we just have to say, you know what, this is what we had to deal with for a while. And we don't have to know. And I'm just going to be in a place of extreme gratitude for yeah. that. So in my role, I get to work a lot with community members and with community advocates. People are doing the most interesting and cool things. And I think our willingness to innovate in Fayetteville is just far above above and beyond many other places. And I'm excited about the innovation that the community is asking for. And I'm really thrilled to be able to be a part of that. And I'm looking forward to it. And then also do expect that 2024 is going to come packed with a lot of city projects and important projects. So keep an eye on our social media, follow us so that you can, you know, beat the algorithm whatever it does to you I don't understand I that like but and
0: subscribe smash that like button <laughs> smash, ring that the bell. Like,
2: smash all the like buttons because you're going to want to know what Fayetteville is up to and and I'm saying that just because we're we've got some pretty large planning projects underway but also we might be able to release our first kind of uh, uniquely designed city historic markers in 2024 mm. we're deep into getting those designed and the manufacturing worked out right now so you may also be seeing some events for unveiling of historic markers for city history. And if you're like, "Ah, I'm not really into history, I don't know. I think this is way cooler than people expect. And the ability to tell our community's story through these kind of like visible representations that are are easily accessible by the public and our visitors can see, I think is really, really cool. And so we're excited to, for the first time ever, have a Fayetteville unique historic marker, I think, ready to go. Nice.
0: Well, thank you so much yeah, for joining us again. So and thank you so much for what you and your colleagues do. And mm-hmm. we just really appreciate you.
2: Well, yeah. it's so fun to be here. Thanks for having a great podcast and let me talk about my work.